This is Don't Forget the Small Stuff, and today we're talking about The Great Escape. Uh, Griff, w- what are you doing here? Watching him. I'm a lifeguard. <laughs> God. <laughs> Welcome to Don't Forget the Small Stuff, the podcast that celebrates the overlooked and forgotten little moments in films. I'm Jess, and with me today is Andy. Hi. And a new member of the team, Griff. Hello. You can find us online at smallstuffcast.com. We are at smallstuffcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can contact us using email at smallstuffcast.com. And our music is by Skeleton King. Find more of Skeleton King's work by following the link in the show notes. Griff, it's great to have you. This is your first, this is your first appearance on Don't Forget the Small Stuff. How are you feeling? Good, good. Thank you very much for inviting me. What pleasure. You're excited for this one, aren't you? Because, um, if I remember rightly, Great Escape is, is one of your faves. It is one of my favourite films, yeah. It's definitely in its top three. Way, way back, like probably 23 or 4 years ago, I, made a, I did a website. Do you remember? I did like top10movies.geocities.com yeah. or something like that. <laughs> And I asked everybody to submit their top tens, and I compiled a massive list. I think Great, Great Escape was at the top of your list back then. It would have been close. It would have yeah. been number one or number two. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. always been up there for me. It's a, it's a UK anyway. At least it was when we were growing up. It's a, a UK Christmas time classic, right? I'm also I don't remember a childhood Christmas when the Great Escape wasn't on at some point. I think you're right. And I, I've never really figured out why, but maybe I'll talk about that a bit later. I think it's, I think it's feel good. I think you know it's. Is it's, it? Yeah, I think so. Is it? I mean, that's true. That's a, is it feel good? I, I don't mean, think not so. Not at the end. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's no. upbeat. It's it's that's um, what I it's mean. Perky. Yeah. We, there. That's something that actually. <laughs> do we talk about it now? I don't know. I just feel like um, it's too happy. Yeah. For the I subject think. matter. I agree. I think so. I think tonally, I go on about this a lot with tone of, of movies, and I don't. It, it starts off and it's plucky and it's it's spunky and it's it's really you know, um, the it, it upbeat is probably the best way of describing yeah. it, uh, and the music perfectly captures that, doesn't yeah. it? Um, and uh, toward the end, not so much. Well, quite. I, I think there are moments when it tries to be darker. But I think it, it it's been offset so much by all of the cheerfulness that um, it sort of gets lost a little bit. Um, doesn't mean to say I don't love the film any any less, but you know I just think it is odd when watching it again, as we do uh, academically. You you try and do some research for these things, and um, yeah, these things it, it hit me harder this time to realise that actually it's a slightly confused. Perhaps a little bit, but hey, who am I to say that? You, you've got to remember it was released less than 20 years after the end of the Second World War. And it yeah. was in a time when they were making lots of war films. And this, at the time, in 1963, had a huge star-studded cast. Yeah. James Garner was a huge star. Steve McQueen was a huge star. Dickie Attenborough. Yeah. All huge stars. So... I don't think if it was made today, it would probably be more somber, more gritty, gritty. Yeah. But back then, I think 
20 years after less than 20 years after the war they wanted it to be it was a, a bit more uplifting and it, it was a box office end exercise really wasn't it it was like we've got these big names let's yeah let's make them shine let's do we want to go into the small stuff straight away or do we have anything else to say about the film um i wanted to say that i think for me that it kind of occupies the same space as several other british wartime movies so it kind of sunday afternoon rainy day stuff that they'd put on one of the less popular channels here in the uk you'd get this the great escape um you might get dam busters mm. you might get the battle of britain um if you're lucky you'll get where eagles dare okay yes um, where eagles dare is is a nice kind of double bill with this yeah yeah but um <laughs> it turns out that I think I've watched this film about 10, 12 times. But turns out I don't think I've seen the end until this time. <laughs> Which I can't quite believe. No, I think it's one of those things where I've probably watched it more than 12 times, just in little bits, chunks here and there, because I think that's the, kind of the nature of my my TV watching or TV movie watching. You kind of grab half an hour here and there. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was genuinely surprised. The last uh, probably 20 minutes, I was like, I don't remember this at all. You don't remember the the motorbike chase? No, that bit I do. But I think perhaps yeah, yeah. because you see it so often in other... It's always, yeah, yeah, that bit so I do. The, the, you know, the, the darker moments toward the end, I was like, man, I don't recall that. Mm. Maybe, I, I mean, I don't think I've blocked it out of my memory or anything. I just don't recall watching it. Anyway... Yeah, so that's my kind of relationship with the film. Um, I've seen almost all of it many times. But, but <laughs> not necessarily not all in minutes. one go. Oh, well, yeah, in the end. Yeah. Uh, right, so let's let's get into the small stuff. Griff, you had something right at the beginning, sort of opening credit, something to say. Yeah, and this is something that I didn't really pick up on until I watched it uh, this time round. But in the opening credits, when they show the truck going to Stalag Luft 3, yeah. Um, I don't know if it was done deliberately or whether it was incidental, but there were poppies growing nice on the bank. And I didn't know, I'd never really thought about it, but I didn't know, is that deliberately done to, you know, just as a poignant yeah. thing? Or did it just happen to be that there were poppies growing on that bank? I don't know. It, it's either intentional or they were very happy when they saw that, right? They're like... That's a stroke of luck. Or maybe they even chose that location specifically for that. The, the whole location of the opening scene is um, is good, I think. I mean, it just it's nice countryside. Are we supposed to know roughly where in Germany it is? Near the Alps? They don't, don't really I mean, give it a, a setting because the actual camp itself is, Poland, is in it? po- what is now Poland. Yeah. yeah. But later on in the film, you get the impression it's close to the Alps. And- yeah, and in sort of not quite but in cycling distance from spain almost anyway and <laughs> well not not, not, I mean, not quite because he gets on a, he gets on a train but anyway not that i'm an expert in building a prisoner of war camps but you'd think building a prisoner of war camp quite close to a neutral border wouldn't be a very good yeah, idea well you know yeah <laughs> okay so let's move on so i wanted to say something about the the conversation that Von Luger, the commandant, whatever his name is, has with uh, Group Captain Ramsey. 
he talks about so he's got all these files right with all of uh, the Ashley Pitt with nine escape attempts and this guy and this guy mm-hmm. and then they've got one man here has tried 17 escape attempts and obviously it's it's Hilt the file he's got is so thick it is brilliant <laughs> like I hadn't ever picked up on it and it goes comes back to you know we're watching it in a slightly yeah. different way for this and it's just a really nice touch. They actually went out of their way to go, no, this would be a thick file because he's such a troublemaker. He's such a bloody nuisance, this guy. <laughs> but I also wanted to talk about Von Luger for a minute. What's what's his game? He, The sense I get from Von Luger is that he's like, he's tired of the war and he's hoping that everyone around him is also tired of the war and they just want to ride out until it's all over and you know see out the war as comfortably as possible i mean he doesn't salute when the the gestapo and the ss give the heil hitler and he's like oh yeah sorry um yeah it's just interesting yeah i got a i was thinking about this a lot actually with uh, i'll get on to a little bit later with, with something else i want to talk about um but i think that's exactly it right so he knows if there's no trouble, then that's it. That's their war. They'll they'll sit there for the next two years or whenever. And I'm going to be respectful to you. We're treating you pretty well, from what I can tell. Mm. Um, you do the same for us. This is your lot. We'll yeah. we'll survive this probably. We'll get through it together, basically. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's that's us looking through the eye of knowing the Allies won the war. Only two guess, years later, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess if you're in a German a German uh, POW camp and you're not sure what's going to happen, if the war went the other way, mm. you know. He's definitely not um, a true believer, like the Gestapo and the SS. Right? Mm-hmm. He's he's a soldier. He's an officer in the Luftwaffe, uh, but he's not. He's not a true believer in the the Nazi way of life and that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah, I was reading about him, actually. He's wearing a Blue Max um, cross around his neck, which um, I think was awarded in the First World War for uh, aces. Okay. He fired, I think oh, it was eight, eight, and eight or 17. I forget what the number was. Shot down that many uh, so he's, dudes. So he's clearly an ace then. Yeah, and obviously a veteran and probably tired of it all, like you say. Mm-hmm. And they do make reference to it in the film that it's it's a Luftwaffe yeah. camp, so mm-hmm. it's airmen only. And I think when you look back at war films like this, I mean, this is set around 1943. Mm-hmm. We know when the war ended. Yeah, they didn't. The, these guys didn't. You know, it, I, I'm not saying his portrayal, he's portraying somebody who didn't know when the war ended, but they didn't know. And, you know, you're right, I agree that he kind of looks like somebody saying, look, we're all bored of this. Let's just not be silly. Yeah. <clears throat> the war will be over soon. In his eyes, Germany are going to win, and then we can all go back to... I'm not even sure in his eyes Germany are going to win. I bet he doesn't even care at this point. He's just like, let's get this over with as, as comfortably as possible. Uh, right, anything else on the... Um, like the arriving at the camp? The only thing that struck me is, why is Group Captain Ramsey hobbling and got a walking stick? It's never explained. Ah, no, I read about this. There was a dude in the original story who was the um, SBO, I think, on the camp, who had a war injury. Ah. And he had a, a leg injury, I think. 
and walked with a limp and a stick. And I think whilst his character's name's not the same, it's a kind of in homage, homage yeah, yeah. To, to him. So I'm glad you asked. Yeah, that's good. So I think that's... I'm glad you read. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it does illustrate, and it comes up later with Colin, like there are some people that are never going to get out of this unless they're released or the war mm. ends, right? Because they can't take part in an escape attempt. And Ramsey is, is one of those. Colin perhaps should have been one of those. Uh, and anyone else who's got, you know, some sort of ailment or injury that they, they can't properly perform their duties, um, you've got to stay. It, it's something that I've, I've often thought when I've watched the film and I've watched it many times is, I wonder how he feels. Because he knows he can't join any yeah. skate committee. He can't skate. He's got to stay there. He's stuck there. Yeah. He's stuck there. And you just sort of wonder how that makes you feel mentally mm. that you're seeing all these people trying to escape, but you know you're not going to be one of them. It's a true leader, right? Yeah, that's what yeah. he is. Yeah, it's a good point. So then we kind of, we meet Hiltz and, and Ives and, and they get chucked in the cooler. So in the cooler, um, when Hiltz gets chucked in, he obviously throws his baseball yeah. in between the goon towers, as he calls them, yeah, um, to see if there's a blind spot. And it's the guard that comes running up to um, stop him. Yeah. I've kind of thought it before, but when I was watched, watched it the other day, I was just like, this guy starts off in a Scottish accent and then goes into a German accent. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. He spent too much time on Ives. You know, yeah. Just rubbing off on him. That's so good. I'll have to watch that again. That's really I, I may be wrong, but it just felt yeah. like he starts off Scottish and then it's always like, <laughs> oh, hold on a minute. To, hold on a minute. I'm meant yeah. to be a, a German yeah. guard here. Although, as I understand it, a lot of the people playing the German guards were, in fact, German so mm. I'm hoping yeah he, he was he in may fact be, German, but it was, yeah. it, this, this may be but yeah uh, so what I wanted to say about the whole cooler stuff is that it's the first of maybe not the first but it's the first mo- most obvious one of or example of uh, the culture clashes that exist within the camp so we got Ives and Hiltz talking to each other about you know what did you do in America did you play did you play mm. baseball you know that kind of stuff and it's like He's like, I did some riding, and he's like, jockey, no, no, motorbike riding, and then he's like, and and so there's this like this culture clash constantly through that conversation about them not quite understanding what each other is on about, and it comes up again. So Blythe and Henley have the whole like um, tea drinking, mm. that kind of like, what are you doing here? That whole that that kind of the the culture thing, and then. Hiltz and Bartlett have and and Mac have a weird conversation about the escape and Hiltz and and um, Mac are really uh, Bartlett and Mac are really kind of sort of laying it on thick with Hiltz, which I think is funny. And then there's also the um, the stuff with Hiltz and oh the squadron leader when they're drinking the Fourth of July moonshine and they just stand there like really after they've said a few like lines to each other they sort of stand there really awkwardly and he's like. Okay, I'm going to go then. And I just think it's really interesting that they they kind of explored the idea that these people are from all different walks of life thrown together and have to figure out a way to communicate and work together even though they have no I think nothing in common really apart from the fact that they're enemies, they're prisoners of the enemy. Uh, and again, not something I'd ever really picked up on until realising it's a common theme throughout the whole movie. Yeah. So, Griff, you wanted to say something about when, when Bartlett Yeah, arrived. it's just something, well, small, 
about when Bartlett arrives, but it's it's just the excitement of when they see the car pull up and they see Squadron Leader Bartlett. I mean, Big X is in there. They're they like, literally said, Danny, at one, or Willie says at one point, um, I wish Big X were here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was just it's just like the excitement when they see him turn up and um, when he gets out of the car and they, they greet him, they take his bag and say, we'll get you a... Yeah, yeah. It's almost like... You There's know, hero worship going yeah. on, isn't there? There is the SPO that's staying there, you know, squad, uh, Group Captain Ramsey, Squadron yeah. Ramsey, sorry, <laughs> Group Captain Ramsey. But you get the feeling that Big X actually is, he's in charge. Yeah. yeah really. Yeah. I mean, in, he's in Group Captain Ramsey. He's the one that they look up to, isn't he? Really? Yeah. They, because while Ramsey might be their, their senior officer, it doesn't mean you say you have to look up to him. You just have to do what you're told by him. Whereas Bartlett is, he's the boss. And they do say, um, don't make too much of a fuss, though. They might not know who he is yet. Well, isn't it the Gestapo and the SS are getting him out of the car? So they probably do know who he is. There's a part, isn't there? And I, and I don't know where the line exactly comes, but they mention that, you know, they've put all the troublemakers here and, and they've got everything. They've got elite guards and all sorts. Yeah. Those guards do not look elite. Well, I guess, first of all, they're guards rather yeah. than soldiers. So. I think that's part of it. They, they just be... appeared to be the stormtroopers of the Second World War. There's like, um, which is slightly ironic, actually. Yeah. Um, but they appear to be, and maybe it was the, the nature of the camp itself. Uh, it just seems really chill. you know. There's... Well, that was what Von Luger wanted, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And they don't, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be. My, my I guess my perception of what prisoner of war camp would be like is not that but actually um again doing some research it sounds like the guys who knew who were there who were kind of advisors to the movie said no this is legit this is Mm. what it was like this is a pretty good representation of how it is it just really surprises me because the guys they just look really like they don't necessarily care yeah i think i think it's worth i think you mentioned it already they're in they're in the hands of the Luftwaffe. And it comes up a few times where they talk about like gentlemen pilots and you know they they don't they grow flowers, they don't grow vegetables. And I think there is this common um aristocracy or or whatever bond between the pilots of both both sides. They see each other as gentlemen and deserving of appropriate treatment. Yeah, because there is an obvious amount of respect yeah. between um, Von Luger and and SBO. You know, yeah. they're they're constantly there is that element of you know they salute and they you know they listen to each other and they're not insulting and um, yeah, I think you're, that's probably it. It just it struck me this time round thinking, well, this is treatment different. Treatment would be different at the hands of the Gestapo and the SS. Hundred, well, you kind of see it, yeah. don't you? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's the key, isn't it? It's it's even though they're the enemy. It's the, the perhaps the best version of the enemy that you mm. could get. Yeah, uh, I wanted to mention something about the meet the first meeting of X when things really start start going. Uh, so he's he's going around the room saying, "You're going to be doing this. You're going to be doing this." Everyone knows their jobs already. It doesn't really need to be assigned. But he's he's going through it. You know, Griff, as I said, Taylor and Cavendish. You'll be doing the surveys and whatever, and then. One of the guys, it's Soren, I think his name is, goes, he knows full well the answer to this question. But he's like, who's in charge of security for all this? And 
Bartlett goes, you are? And it's like, was Soren slightly worried that he was going to assign like security duties to someone else? Because he knew, he knew it was him. He's just like a little flex. He's like, don't, not even a flex. He's like, don't forget me. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. the security guy. Yeah, you're probably right. I think it's like, I'm important too. I can't believe you haven't named me yet. Mm-hmm. I yeah. should have been one, two or three on your list. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, security is so important, right? Yeah. yeah so just going back on that point, I I can't think it, but they mentioned that some people didn't come from another camp and they may have escaped. So I do wonder, was one of those people that didn't arrive, was he the, well, were they one of the security officers? So someone's going, well, this guy would normally do security. I oh, would help him. Good point. But he's not here. So yeah, he's doing okay. it. Is so it me? It's an, is it him putting a bid in? So what you're saying, it's like he's getting a, a promotion. Yeah. He's in charge of security, where actually he was, before that, he was just like second in command of security. Because we obviously learned that the scrounger that was in the ex-organization mm-hmm. before wasn't in the camp. So he's either escaped, gone to a different camp, or was shot. Yeah. That's what we're thinking, I guess. That other guy. Didn't get his name, but they do mention him, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also want to talk about um, when they start, they start gathering like material for the pick and stuff. You know, when they they have to do that little diversion <laughs> on the card. Yeah. So they they do the thing with the tap, and and he's and the guy, the German guy, the German guard. His name's Frick, which is entertaining mm-hmm. enough as it is. <clears throat> he's so funny. He's like. What did, what's going on? He's like, turn the water off somewhere. <laughs> He's pleading with someone, anyone out there, to turn the water off. He is elite. Yeah. But this is a reason why they're not elite, because if you're elite, you know that's a diversionary tactic. You think so? You know, yeah, yeah. you know why they're doing that. Swift but does it matter? someone's knees. But does it matter that you, you know it's a diversionary tactic? There's nothing you can do about it at that point, because all of the people are around you. It's there's no other guards nearby that can come and help you because <laughs> so yeah maybe he does know it's a diversion but what can he do about it? What do they take off the car? Uh, some they take some metal. I, yeah, I have so no really idea. quickly two identical parts from what I can tell. Well, you're the car guy. You tell us. I don't us. know. They're just like random pieces of metal that someone Is has the strapped to the bar. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. Second World War. It German doesn't take very would, long. Would have he doesn't an have any tools, bar. does he? Oh, he's got something. He's handy. He's he knows what he's doing. Very, very quickly removed parts from that vehicle. Yeah. So one of the coolest scenes comes shortly after that when they are um, they're they're doing the the first or oh, the second tunnel, I guess, in the in what is it like the shower room or whatever, and you know they they, they get interrupted by an inspection. I had a couple of well, one specific thing. I mean, I love that I'm watching him. I'm a lifeguard. We, we, we alluded to that one earlier. It's just such a great line. You're not in your hut. What are you doing here? Mopping up. And you? Shower. I need a wash. I'm watching him. I'm a lifeguard. But the thing that I wanted to mention was... So... That hole that they've dug, the start of the tunnel, is in what looks like the the drain mm-hmm. of the shower block. Surely when the shower is running, as it is when Danny's having a shower, that's going to flood the tunnel. 
No, because he seals, he puts a slab. Yeah, he puts the slab down. But then he has like some putty or something in hand, which he seals the oh, edge of the... So you think that's what he... Because he does that. I assume... He's, I, I've always assumed he's done that to seal the edge of the... But then what happens... So it's grease because, or something. Is surely it, like... that then floods the bathroom. Well, no, because... There you, are drains There are there, drains right? that go like, like either off side. Off the sides. He hides the... He hides like the pick and the hammer in one of them. The or right. But I've, okay. al- I've always just come to the conclusion that he's done that just to stop it because you see him like yeah. scraping his hand across the corners don't you to make it look good but i also thought that's just to stop the water like you said just going straight down into the tunnel okay all right i'll take it griff you wanted to say something about the uh the way they distribute the dirt yeah um so one of the things they talk about with the dirt and they say look this is the dirt from the compound this is the dirt um from the tunnels you know, it's different. How are we going to get rid of it? And they go, well, we could put it underneath the huts. No, I saw a, I saw one of the guards measuring yeah. the height of that the other day. And they talk about the normal places. And then Ashley Pitt comes up with his... Ingenious. Ingenious thing. But then often th- thought, if they're just putting that into the ground, surely the ground level is going to rise quite significantly with lots of dirt that they're saying is coming from the tunnel. <laughs> so if they can't put it under a hut because it's going to... They're going to yeah. see the height difference. Surely they're going to see the height difference on the marching ground. Constantly raking. How much did they say? They said three tons, yeah. didn't they? Three, t- three tons of dirt on the uh, on the exercise yard. I go with it it's because it's, it's the narrative of the film, and yeah. you know I love the film. But I just thought, I, I've always thought if it's going to be too high under a, one of the yeah. one of the buildings, then surely it's going to be noticeable where they're treading. The it. theory being, of course, that they are distributing it across a wider area. Yes, yes but, that's very true. But, but and I don't, as, I don't, as they um, tell us, the details of the escape are accurate. So they actually did, did that. Did that. Yeah, they yeah. did it. So it must have worked. I, f- I find that actually, I find the um, the shooting of, of of them distributing the dirt from their trousers very funny because yeah. it's so obvious. <laughs> They're just walking over <laughs> this garden, and then, just, why and then they over? stop, and then they kind of shake their legs. <laughs> 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 well, like, I, I would imagine that in reality they did it slightly uh, more subtly than that. They'd have so. to do a lot of, the, you know, they do that marching drill and they're like kicking yeah. the dirt in with them. They'd have to do a lot of those, like constantly. Yeah. <clears throat> do we know? I'm sure it's available. Uh, I just don't know it because I haven't done any of that research. But do we know how long the escape actually took? Like more than a couple of months, I'm guessing. It was more than two and a half hours. <laughs> what, of the, of the <laughs> film? No, fair. I did read it, but frankly, I've forgotten. It was over a year, I think. Yeah, okay. So the, the, it had really has been, time really has been compressed. I think it was well over 12 months. Okay. It was a long time. Fair enough. I'm going to skip a few scenes because I want to mention um, the way Henley, who's, by the way, as far as I can tell, when... When Mac comes in to show him all of the, the you know the marmalade and the chocolate and all that kind of stuff, I'm pretty sure he calls Henley Bob, which I really like. I think Henley's first name is Bob, which is good. Uh, anyway, he basically seduces Werner, doesn't he? He's he's just mm-hmm. like, hey, come into my room. I've got some coffee, and like Werner's like, oh, all right, here, have a cigarette. <laughs> you yeah. probably got you probably got a couple of roommates. Here goes a couple more. Just to go back, his name was Bob. Bob, Bob Hendley. So, Werner got properly, properly fished in, didn't he? Uh, he he knew when to bail, though, didn't he? As soon as he saw something official, yeah. he's like, "Nah, yeah. man, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm out." 
The 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 the, the, the meet. I think it's the initial meeting, or one of the early meetings between Werner and Hendy. The bit that always makes me smile was uh, when Werner's proudly going on about his Boy Scouts badge. Yeah. He goes, "I got like, I got fifteen. Oh, I got sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> just happens to have one more. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's no, he's he's kind of it's a. It's a it's a psychological um, masterclass mm. by Henley, isn't it? He's absolute genius. So that speech, Werner gives a little bit of monologue about him, and I, does he mention the dentist? The dentist here is the quality yeah. of his teeth, and yeah. um, he then goes on to say that you know he's not a well man. Um, pretty sad. He died like three years after the movie oh, from cancer. Yeah, oh. so. Yeah, Werner Ver- could tell you stories about his teeth that would make you... Uh, Your hair stand on it, yeah. he says, yeah. I just, it's really melancholy, that part. And yeah. we talked about it before, didn't we, about how um, uh, Von Luger is, is perhaps just tired of the war. Werner doesn't want to be in it. No. Right? He's, you get the impression, him like probably hundreds of thousands of other people constri- conscripted into it, has no interest in being a soldier yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, and just wants just wants it to go away, and, and he I, just so sad. He does. He's doing his job because he has to, because he's fearful of not doing his job, right? And yeah. what would happen if he doesn't do his job? He's so to the front line. Yeah, I think exactly yeah. the Russian front. So I think, in, in some ways, in, in a lot of ways, this film is actually quite sympathetic towards the the average German, or not even the average German, if you think of von Luger mm. as well. Um, which interestingly, the the prisoners. Are, the Allied prisoners are not sympathetic mm. towards. I mean, I guess they are slightly to Werner, but actually, they're not. Like you know, that they don't care. Like Hiltz especially doesn't care what happens to von Luger. You know, he's like, yeah. "You'll still be here when I get back, get out," and you know, that kind of stuff. The other thing with Hendley and his um and his scrounging. Whenever I hear von Luger, I can't just hear von Luger. All I can hear is Devon Luger's butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whenever his name's said, all I can think of is Devon Luger's butter. Von Luger's butter. <laughs> oh, the German word for butter got me into a right mess when I was in Germany once. I had to. I was. I, I tried every possible version of the word butter in German to a woman in a cafe, and they just looked at me blankly, like I had absolutely. They had absolutely no idea what I was saying until I said it the, the way I'd said it right at the beginning, and they went, oh, yeah, butter, yeah, okay. What is butter in German? I think it's just Buddha. But, it sounds know. like you're saying Buddha. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> ah. uh, so uh, qu- quick little bits and pieces before, uh, as we go on. Uh, when they are doing the um, the drawing of the birds, uh, my guy Frick is in there again. He's like, I've got better things to do with my time than draw birds or whatever. But also I love the way... Colin, after they get the all clear from the diversion guys or the security guys, Colin just tosses the chalk down, just absolutely dismisses the chalk because he's got more important things to do. Bearing in mind, bird watching is one of his passions. He's like, nope, I'm done with this. Let's get on with the the real work. I'm also skipping ahead. The scene, the scene with your namesake, Griff, Griff. Uh, when he's showing Bartlett all the outfits. I don't know if there's a co- p- politically correct way to discuss this, but the character Griff is quite camp. Yeah. I like that. I, I don't know whether they are playing on the stereotype that someone who like makes clothes is somewhat effeminate or whether they are just quite completely blasé about the fact that and potentially he might be one of the 
the first openly gay characters in a war film, maybe ever. And I quite like that. I quite, I almost, I sort of applaud it, really. I mean, they don't obviously talk about it in any detail at all, but um, he's he is particularly camp and effeminate, and I think that's that's to the film's credit in some mm. ways. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking. No, no, it. I, I, I did, uh, I did think the same thing. Um, I also found myself thinking, how, how the heck do you tailor that many outfits when you're essentially in jail? Mm. I don't. I mean, got, it's my naivety, right? I, I always think this. How do you get hold of cigarettes when you're in prison? I don't understand. Mm. Um, they were allowed. Don't eight, write in. <laughs> they were allowed aid packages, weren't yeah, they? Yeah. Because they took. They mentioned the hot one of the cross. scenes. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think is it um, Blythe gets a, a care package from his sister or something with tea and stuff, or something mm. who has tea and yeah. stuff. So I think they may have been. I think it was yeah. a. Uh, yeah, the Red Cross can get parcels yes. through and stuff. That's right, the Red Cross, mention, but they've got a, like a whole jar full of buttons. Yeah, like I say, I'm not sure. Griff um, very, <laughs> he, he very proudly um, says, shows Bartlett the tin of buttons. Oh, just look at these buttons, and Bartlett's like, okay, buttons, thanks, mate, and puts them down. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, but I love the way he goes. They make rather nice lounge suits. Oh yes, that's rather nice. <laughs> the, the whole thing on the the, the outfits though, because. Obviously, a lot of it is based on um, a true life. Is the kind of the ingenuity, the genius of like we take a blanket and we're just going to make it into like a cardigan. Yeah, and you know, getting boot polish to dye like uniforms, and mm-hmm. you know that stuff kind of did happen. And you think it's genius. Yeah. Just one more thing on yeah. those those suits. I mean, they're they're so. Um convincing that is it cavendish when he's he's caught at the end and yeah. he's, he's explaining mm. to the i guess the gestapo guy yeah. um and trying to explain away that his suit really isn't that good because mm. it was done you know we did this that and the other yeah. and the guy's like, oh, are you expecting you you lost your insignia as well did you yeah, yeah. Like, well yeah yes i did actually <laughs> so he's yeah so the suit is so good yeah that the gestapo guy thinks that he's a spy yes like where did you get these <clears throat> civilian clothes from yeah, good old Griff. Yeah, it's a nice touch, that. Like yeah. that. When Hiltz gets out of the cooler for the second time and he's got another plan, or is it darker the moon, he's going he's gonna to escape again and, and Ives can come with him if he wants. Bartlett and Mac are just waiting for him in the room, right? They're just, they're, they knew he's coming. They're waiting mm-hmm. for him as soon as he came out of the cooler. <laughs> so, first of all, I love that scene because, again, it's that kind of culture clash thing going on and, and they are so so deadpan and he's like, I wouldn't do that for my own mother. And he's like, oh, no, completely understandable. Yeah, that's fine. Because mm-hmm. they know that eventually he's going to change his mind. So I love that. But also, he's only been in the cooler. So Hiltz has been in the cooler, escaped, captured in the cooler, let out of the cooler. Yeah. He didn't have a room. He didn't have a bed. He didn't even... He was thrown in the cooler before he had a chance to pick a cabin and put yeah. his stuff in. Yeah. So how did they know where to meet him? Had he been assigned a bed? Had he... But they were there. They ambushed him, basically. Bartlett and Mac. Probably the only bed left in the camp. They Maybe. Were in. Well, they do mention there were some empty huts, actually, um, when they're talking about shoring up the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they probably said, right, there's a spare bunk there. <laughs> Can we talk about the bunks a little bit? Because they appear to be made of balsa wood. There's no way. They're three-tier bunks, right? Yeah. 
and as soon as someone gets on the top, you see it a couple of times in the background, mm. right? And it's not even when they're taking them apart. Okay. Right? Because I get that. As soon as someone gets on the top, they look like they're about to collapse. <laughs> they're just they're wobbling, and I'm thinking, no way. No way. They're, they're top heavy. They're not thin enough. They're not wide enough for a guy to be sat on the bottom and a guy just like, wiggling. You're, you're I don't worried. buy it. Yeah, okay. You don't buy no, it. No, I don't. I think they're poorly constructed props. Well, okay. Oh, but, oh no. <laughs> Having a go at the prop department of the Great Escape. Oh man. Yeah. And I tell you, if they use that wood to shore up the tunnels, I'm not getting in that. I mean, I probably would, right? But yeah, I know what you're saying. But no, you, you, yeah. you go back and look at how flimsy. Just in the background, when people just, just clamber on and they're talking, no way. Well, we do see Cavendish do the, his alley-oop on, a, on you know, he does it twice, one successfully and one unsuccessfully, and he, it's all right then, isn't it? They'd probably reinforce it for that scene. <laughs> yeah, let's get the good one from the prop department and use it for this scene. The rest of them suck. We should also, while we're talking about the beds and, and allocation and stuff like that, um, how do they work out who gets what room? Okay, I can understand um, squadron leader, no, um, the, the Ramsey will have, like, he's he's the main guy, main officer, he'll have a nice room. Some of them are in, like, Cavendish are in a room with lots of other beds. There's the the room where the showers are, which seems to have, like, 20 beds, triple bunk beds. But then <laughs> Blythe and Henley are in a private room with, with two bunks <laughs> and a cupboard and a table. It's and lovely. Well, it's like a suite almost. <laughs> How did they get assigned that? And... Henley's in there, and then when he comes back, this is right towards the beginning, he sees Blythe's stuff, and he sees his tea strainer and stuff, and it's like, oh, I've got a roommate. It's like, I wasn't expecting a roommate. And then Blythe comes in, he's like, oh, hello. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? Why did you guys just happen to, to get this really amazing suite where everyone else is on the dorms? I, I hadn't really thought about that, but now you mention it, I have no idea. They're in, like you say, they're in the suite. Yeah. They're not... Um, and how did Henley like, get that? I mean, yeah, he just turns up. He's like, as far as I'm aware, he's he's, he's new to the camp on yeah. the, when he arrives and he, oh, have this lovely room with this pleasant gentleman. With, with a table and, and, yeah, and a cupboard. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, maybe they knew he was a scrounger and so they assigned it to him because they knew they were going to have to have a place for him to keep all the stuff he scrounged. I don't know. But anyway, it's pretty entertaining. We are going to skip quite a long way forward uh, and we're going to talk about what is probably the most fun scene until it, all of a sudden it isn't the most fun scene, which is the 4th of July. So uh, the little cannon that Hiltz makes on the 4th of July is just, it might be my favourite thing at the whole film. I don't know what he chucks in there, but he's basically got a bin on its side and the lid of the bin goes boom and it flies about 10 feet and it's just, and it wakes everyone up in the cab. It's just brilliant. How are they allowed to have essentially explosive materials at hand? Yes. I go back to my previous comment. The the guards do leg it out there, don't they? As if to say, what the hell was that? And But then they do nothing. They don't say, why or where did you get these small explosives from? Yeah, so I, th- I think the 4th of July scene is one of my favourite in the entire film. Yeah. F- for for many reasons. Um, like you've just said, I love 
the little kind of cannon that Hiltz sets off, then um, it's always baffled me that Hiltz then randomly has different kind of clothing. He's Does always he? wearing, he, he wears his, he kind of wears oh, he's his got a red sweats, shirt. He's got uh, yeah. a red shirt on. Yeah. He it's could have borrowed it, you know, yeah. Griff could have knocked it out of him, but that's always made me... <laughs> he, he actually could. <laughs> um, they also then randomly have an American flag, which, when you look at it, looks like they could have potentially made out of a bed sheet. Or, or okay, all right, fair enough. But it could be like in the uniform. And then a flute. Um, also, um, the character Henley, but James Garner's awful um, attempt at drumming. He just cannot. If you watch... Is it bad? I'm it's it's terrible. It. It's, because the, the the audio that plays over that, I was thinking, right, he's really good. And then you look at what he's doing; yeah. it's like a child. With a... <laughs> okay, no, I I I need to pay more attention yeah. to that. I've not his, seen that. His um, <clears throat> drumming is terrible, and it's just the whole scene and um, them coming out with the moonshine and it being strong, um, and, uh, and and probably. I know it's one of my it's one of my favourite lines. We've talked about it. But Scoop crapped in Ramsey after he's had a had a few things and <laughs> the com- the conversations like you know is a little bit awkward. He's just like, oh, how how are you boys doing over there without us? <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I was coming up for ideas for our opening like joke. That was my first idea. Was I was going to try and do the group Captain Ramsey? How 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 are you managing? <laughs> it's like I've got nothing else to say, so I'll see how yeah. you're doing. Yeah, um, since you gained in independence yeah. in 1776. <laughs> yeah. How, how are you managing over there without us? Getting along all right, are you? We seem to be getting along all right. Sure, sir. Oh man, that whole scene is great. It's brilliant, though. Yeah. Yep. And it, it kind of works well in the in in the film. It's a little bit of a bit of like relief and stuff. And they kind of said when um, let's give them a day off. You know, yeah. they've been working so hard. And, and yeah. it is, is it is that in the and from a narrative point of view, it's the calm before the storm of them yeah. finding the tunnel. And I think it works really well because you, you really feel like everything's great. Like where everything's going so well, they kind of say it as you just said. Um, yeah, it's awesome. We'll skip forward again a little bit to the um, the escape itself, or the the start of the escape. Everybody is checking their watch, and as you as you would, right? Like you know when the escape's about to start, but they show three or four characters very pointedly checking their watch, which I think is is a nice touch. I mean, on the escape itself, the kind of the night of the escape, it's. Um... Sedgwick and his, his just massive steamer trunk. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Where does that come from? What's in it? <laughs> exactly. It says something. I didn't, when I was watching it, I couldn't quite hear what it is. that your something? I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I think, yeah, it's that Sedgwick with his steamer trunk is basically what yeah. Goff says. Right. And then, okay. and um, my guy, uh, Soren, goes, You won't get that through. He says, I'll cope. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, I know what I wanted to mention. And I guess it comes down to what we've already talked about, how time is compressed for narrative reasons. But things things develop very quickly in this film. So Blythe's eyes, I mean, they don't talk about it earlier in the film, but basically Blythe, Blythe goes blind in the space of one scene. But there is a there is a scene when Roger's checking the work Mm-hmm. And Blythe's made a mistake, and I think that's it. It it they don't kind of continue the narrative, but I think that's the mm, fair enough. Them starting, you know, where 
and then he, doesn't he look at? Oh, he 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 comes. Um, Henry he comes look- in with a tin of condensed milk or something, and he just happens to have it right at Blythe's eye line, and Blythe goes, "Oh, splendid!" And he takes the condensed milk for his tea. Uh, so yeah, maybe it's it's there, but not overtly talked about. No. The other thing that comes up very quickly is Danny's claustrophobia. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. it's like he's spending months in the tunnel digging, and then all of a sudden he's like, well, I he can't do try, it. He does, try and run, he does try and escape yeah, before the tunnel. The That's what I mean. That's what I mean. But there is no mention. But yeah, like you say, he's been spending, like the main guy, digging for... Yeah. And he mentions he's done it before and felt the same way. I do like the way Willie suggests, uh, tries to get him motivated to get out of the tunnel by talking about the things he could do and mentions Blackpool. That's like the, the <laughs> carrot he's dangling. Yes. Have um, you ever been to Blackpool at the height of the season, he yeah, said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know no, no offence to Blackpool. See, but, you were, re- were you recently at Blackpool? Oh, you were yeah, there, a couple of years ago I was in Blackpool. Yeah. See, on Willie and going off on a massive tangent, and yeah. I didn't realise this until fairly recently, but John Layton, who played Willie, was a massive pop star back in the 60s. And did Johnny Remember Me? Okay, I don't know the song, but all right. You'd, you'd know so. it if you'd heard yeah. it. But okay. yeah, he was a huge like right. pop star back in the UK, back in the 60s. Well, singers are talking about that. I'm also going gonna, gonna to go down that tangent with you because Ashley Pitt, who's played by David McCallum, he, so he's like well-known. He was in, what was he in the, um, oh God, it's a 60s TV show. Mission that he was Impossible. In. Mm, no, anyway, it doesn't matter. He's in NCIS. The Man from Uncle. That's the That's one. It, the man yeah, from thank Uncle. you. Uh, he's in NCIS now, and he's one of the original cast members, and he's still in it. Whatever. So in the sixties, he released four albums. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Yeah, he he released a song called The Edge. was sampled by Dr. Dre for the next episode and it's like the the next episode is like the most gangster rap gangster rap yep. track that I can think of and it's a David McCallum song that he's uh, mm-hmm. sampling yep. and you listen to The Edge it, it's just the next episode it's just the- it is There's not much done with Dre it. Dre didn't that? even yeah. try that hard. No, no, he really didn't. He just nicked it. <laughs> well, I mean, some... He did because he's Dre and he's brilliant. But Absolutely. Yeah. But it's super weird, isn't it? Yeah. I was like, I can't believe this is, <laughs> this is that song. And it's David McCallum. Mm. It's Eric Ashley Pitt. Uh, the other thing that Ashley Pitt says uh, to Bartlett before he goes up the tunnel, he says, uh, I'll see you in Piccadilly, Scott's Bar. About 20 years ago, I went to Piccadilly and I tried to find Scott's Bar. I'm that sad. I didn't look very hard, but there isn't one. Not anymore. I mean, we're, you know, 60 years after mm. the fact. But um, I would have loved it if Scott's Bar still existed. Uh, there's one other thing. So Mac, right, he's there 
for he's the intelligence guy, right? He collects. Says yeah. It's Mac's job to know everything that happens in the camp, right? That's he's supposed to be the the smartest intelligence gathering guy, right? He's thick. He's not that bright. So when they're 20 feet short and Bartlett and Mac are at the bottom of the exit of the tunnel, like trying to figure out what's to do, Mac goes, we could postpone it until we're in the right place. And Bartlett immediately shoots him down, says all the papers are dated today. The papers that Mac yeah, yeah. was in charge of. Mm-hmm. He's just not that bright. And I think he's, he's not good under pressure. You kind of see that later. I yes. think that's that's exactly what it is when on the spot. And if you think about an intelligence guy, we're probably overanalyzing this, but that's what we're here for. Well, no, but you say it comes up later in the film that he's not good under pressure, but yeah. when he's check, when everybody's going through like their their outfits and their papers, and yeah. they're being kind of um, they're interrogated, interrogated by yeah. by Mac. He, yeah. he he says to um, I think it's Haynes, one of them. Yeah, he sort of. Speaking to them in German, how's your German? He speaks in German and he goes, uh, You're really good. He goes, Oh, thanks, Mac. I've been working on it. Because, Oh, that's the easiest trick in the book. Yeah. To and then he gets called up. But then he it. gets called by that, doesn't he? I mean, I know it's kind of meant to be an irony, but yeah. you're right. You know, he, he's meant to be the intelligence officer and he says, This is the easiest trick in the book. But so I'm under the, a little bit of pressure. Yeah. And I think intelligence is all about uh, research and preparation. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not normally in the front line of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got gotcha. you. So I, th- I think he's he's very smart at intelligence and information gathering and preparation, but when the chips are down, it's nothing. He says, he says we can't destroy the dirt and we can't eat it. That's as far as my thinking takes me. We we can't destroy the dirt. And we can't eat it. The only thing left to do is camouflage it. That's as far as my thinking takes me. Wait, wait you <laughs> sure you can't eat it? I mean, um, this dirt. You could eat it. It's <laughs> three tons. Yeah. Why was that? I mean, I don't know. Anyway, it's wasn't even an maybe option. The, but yeah. that's as far as my thinking takes me. Well, you, good you've work, you've never been involved in a tunneling <laughs> thing, then, Mac, before. Good work, Mac. <laughs> Thanks. And then Barlett has a go at Willie. Because if, if you must think clearly, if you must think, think clearly. Have a go at Mac. He's the idiot. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, there's one last thing in the the foil. No, I guess not the foiled escape, but the when they find out about the escape. Um, well, actually, no. There's two things. So Griff, it's my fault. You and I have exactly. You and I have discussed this uh, a couple of times in the past. Yeah, it's Griff's fault that the escape attempt gets foiled. Well, it it, mm. it, it yeah. is it Sedgwick's or is it Griff? Okay, because Sedgwick's the one who falls over with. Why, why he's got a wrapped parcel, I don't white, know. A white, white, white wrapped white parcel. parcel. Mm-hmm. So look, I am I am no longer like uh, thinking it's Griff's fault. I am 100% it's Sedgwick's fault. And I'll tell you why. Yes, he falls over. He's got a white package. What an idiot. He's the bloody survey okay. guy. It's his mistake that they're 20 feet short. Yeah. Like... Mm. And, you know, you see how diligent he is when they're in the tunnel and they're measuring and we've got the string and all that kind of stuff. That's a big mistake to be 20 feet out. Um, so I'm sorry, Cavendish. It's not Cedric. I'm, I'm saying Cedric, but I mean Cavendish. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm saying Cedric. Yeah, yeah, Cavendish. Cavendish. Um, sorry, sorry, Cedric. You had <laughs> your steamer trunk. On that point, right, they can pretty much accurately 
gauge the distance between where they start the tunnel and the edge of the camp. Yeah. I guess the edge to the forest is a estimation. That's the guess. That's, that's right? the only thing. They yeah. just guessed it poorly. And but surely you uh, surely you that, overguess, right? But no, but but surely that information is corroborated by everybody. Right. I think that's 100 feet. Mm. What do you think? No, it's 200. You're rubbish. They did basically go, we're going to rely on Cavendish for his survey. I don't. But also, if you look at <clears throat> that scene when Hiltz first goes out, yeah. and like they realise they're 20 feet short, and it, I don't, I'm not um, getting Cavendish off here, but mm. there are felled trees. So yes. is it a case of... They chop the trees down? They chop some trees no, down. But they know. But, but, and, and going on the front, when Cavendish falls over... How did the elite guard not see him lying on the floor with a white package? He's got a dark coat. Yeah, I know I he's think, got a dark coat, but he's like he's yeah. he's, he's right in front of us. Like, that elite guard, by the way, that's my guy. That's Frick again. I don't think that's particularly well shot because I think they overlight it. Mm. Right, I think it's too light. Mm. The, the 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 grass they're in. I think for us for our benefit. I think right? they so have we, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a filmmaking thing. Yeah, so I think it's weird because to us it looks almost like daylight, and you think, well, I can see him. Why can't you? Mm. And I also think on the, the the escape thing, all the way through the film, Hilt just wants to get out. Yeah. He wants to see Berlin from mm-hmm. the air. Yeah, yeah. He wants to get out. Loads of people have escaped. Yeah, he's still there on the rope going... Well, ding, ding. that's... He yeah, stays. he's the guy, all right? He's... He's the... I mean, you know, I guess it's Stephen Queen, so he had to be the hero of the film, but he's the... Well, I don't know, the Han Solo. He's the Rick Blaine. He's the guy that ultimately will come through for you when you need him. Because Mac and Roger like say, look, we'll have to pass the instruction on. We got a train to catch, but Hilt, no, you, you stay. Mac down and Roger should have stayed down. They should have yep. been the captain with the sinking ship. I think, personally. But no, I agree because mm. they said, look, we've got a train to catch. We better move. Yep. What about Hilt? Yeah. Well, well that's Mac. That, by the way, that's Mac again saying we've got to go. There's a we'll miss the train. I, Mac. I know we don't know if Hilt was getting a train. Yeah. But Hilt stays behind. He doesn't pass instructions on and goes, look, here's the mm. thing. I'm off. Yeah, Pass it on. No, mm. I'll stay to the end. And It's a weird decision. I don't want to get bogged down on this, but it is a weird decision that they decide to just... Do they skip the queue or do they just decide that they are 10th in line and we're off? Thanks. I think, I mean, how many get away? Like 70-something, right? 76. So we don't see all of the people that escape. So mm. Mac and Roger have been there a while telling people yeah. what the plan is. So I think they were at the front of the queue because they are the yeah. the main guys. Are the, the And so I think, you know, they did sacrifice a bit by staying down there. So I don't feel too badly. For but, but I don't feel too hard on them. what they had to do was wait for a rope to go move twice to go, now you go. Yeah. They didn't really need to stay that long. Because mm. it was yeah. like, see this rope, when it moves twice, go. See what's happened? Now Max gone? Right, go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, one other thing about the that the whole scene in the camp when the escape gets uh, found out is the way Goff gets out of the tunnel mm-hmm. right at the end when he's in the shower room and he like he somehow manages to push himself up and land with both feet on the <laughs> yeah. the edges of the tunnel. The other thing about Goff, cool. this isn't taking anything away from Goff, but when they're um, having the meeting at the start of the film and they say positions in tunnel will be given based on what you contribute so obviously like mac and willie they, they dug the thing 
don't actually really see Goff contributing much to the tunnel yet. There he is in it. Did he? Did he say that? I didn't. I don't remember yeah, that line. They, they say okay. they, they they say that okay. your position in the tunnel will be just because that's why um, Hilt gets basically yeah, a yeah. good spot. Because if you escape, yeah, he sacrifices do some reconnaissance yeah, for yeah, us. Yeah, okay. You'll get and you'll we'll bump you up the tunnel. And I like Goff's character, but it's like, what did he actually he do? Did, um, to... He unscrewed the tap to get the <laughs> that's the, true the diversion <laughs> on that German guy. So yeah. Sorry, Goff. But... <laughs> uh, right, so then they're all, you know, they're out and about in Germany. There's one scene that I wanted to mention on the, you know, they all end up at the railway station. Mm-hmm. Like half of the guys mm. uh, that miss the trains are at the railway station. So I think it's either Haynes or um, Nimmo, but I think it might be Haynes. You want to watch it back. See how close to the train tracks he is standing when the train comes like it is like i'm pretty sure the train is like about a foot or six inches away from his face as it goes by it's it's unbelievable it's like everyone else is like just on the platform just milling around and he's standing right next to the tracks and the train goes by about six inches from his face it's brilliant so the other thing of that, that the scene where they're all milling around the station is when um hendy comes in with colin and says um half the guys are here who missed their train yeah, yeah. But Mac was saying to Roger, we've got to go, we're going to miss our trip. Well, you missed it. You missed it, yep. You could yes, again, Mac. Yeah. <laughs> Mac's an idiot. Turns out, <clears throat> when Hiltz gets... Actually, no, sorry, Griff, you had something in Colin. Presumably that's yeah, Colin. this is when they're in the, the, the plane, when they steal the plane. Yeah. Um, a bit that just kind of makes me smile is, he says, Henley says to Connor, right, he goes, crank this handle and... When you hear it starting, move away. Yeah. Fine, because you know, you're blind. But he does that. It starts up, and then Colin just takes the handle out. He, he knows exactly how to remove the handle from the plane. He's like, the guy can't see. <laughs> how does he know how to take it out? He's only been in a plane <laughs> once. He went out for a joyride. You just pull it? I mean, I know, maybe it just, it just comes it just, off. It, just, it was something that made me smile. Thinking, you know, he can't see yet. He, he knows how to pull the handle yeah. out. Get old Colin. So Hiltz gets caught finally. Okay. Um, it's worth pointing out. I think this is quite quite well known, but there are multiple scenes in the bike chase where uh, Steve McQueen is playing one of the yeah. German riders yeah. as well as himself, which I think is quite cool. But Bud Edkins did a lot of the riding. Who? Bud Edkins. Okay. Because the producers wouldn't let Steve Mc... Steve McQueen wanted to do a lot of his riding, mm. but they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him do the jump. He wanted to do the jump. Oh, that's disappointing. Um, but they said, no, we can't risk it, mate. <laughs> I rarely tried it and fell off. Oh. I don't know. I mean, the, the not that I'm... I don't know how to do that list, but... I don't, I'm not an authority on The Great Escape, but the stuff that I've be. kind of been made aware of, that he wanted to do it, but they said no. Okay. And he was mates with a chap called Bud Edkins. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Bud Edkins did a lot of the riding, and then Bud Edkins basically became a stuntman on, off the back of it. Um, he did. But yes. He did loads of... Uh, Work for chips. He did, yes. Oh, yes. But I can, mm. yes, he did. But yes, he also Steve McQueen. He is. did a lot of the the Nazi riding, I think. And and there's one. It's in the bike chase, but you know it, he's back on his bike again. But the scene there was one scene where Hiltz has he's got the German uniform on. He's got the he's got like the Luger pistol, yeah. and mm-hmm. he he's lining up to like see if he can shoot. It's like you're not gonna really. No, no that's not gonna work, Virgil. Why are so many people going after Hill? Right, that's, that's a, my that's point. Battalion. 
So like, when like he forty people when, going right at the end, right before he crashes into the, or he does the jump and yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like like he's forty flanked. foot soldiers come over the rise. <laughs> it's incredible. On? Well, what I was going to say because I was going to make that exact point is that it's exactly what Bartlett wanted. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. He wanted every possible spare soldier concentrating on this escape rather than fighting on the front mm-hmm. line. So I think it's it's a it's a clumsy not necessarily clumsy but it's it's an overdone way of showing that it's they, a bit ridiculous yeah. at the end, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it? I is, think but... it is like you say clumsy because mm. there's he's flanked by foot soldiers coming up the hill and like trucks on the other side of him yeah. with like thirty guys in it. It's, Where did the foot soldiers come from? I don't know. Right? They just started to run up the hill. It's like the sound of music, but with like <laughs> Nazi foot soldiers. It's really strange. Uh, we do get a lovely, uh, lovely. What am I talking about? We get the the French resistance scene in the cafe. Mm. Yeah. So there's three there's three um, Nazi guys sat down having a nice, pleasant afternoon. Pano, uh, toi Pano. Yes. Well, yeah. that's the thing, right? So the waiter brings across their Pano, and the guy in the middle. The dude, you look at his drink. He's got half the quantity of the other guys. Oh, the other two. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I am sending that right back. Well, I mean, you're a Nazi um, officer. You could probably shoot the guy for that. Well, probably. Yeah. So yeah, I. I <laughs> he doesn't seem to care, but he's probably had three already, frankly. But um, yeah, poor measures, French cafe man. <laughs> oh well, you know, he doesn't care. He's, he's he hates resistance. He's a resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So just to go back to clarify yeah. a point, Steve McQueen and um, Tim Gibbs actually did both perform the jump, apparently on camera, and the director has, has said that any three of them could have performed that stunt. Oh, right. But so the, the, but the one on film is? Bud Atkins, okay. because they couldn't risk, they couldn't let Steve McQueen do it, because if it had gone wrong, that's right. the star of the film. They would have yeah, yeah. I think it might have been insurance, it's like, <clears throat> you've broken Steve McQueen. Mm. No, fair. So he was told no, so... Yeah, doff my cap to you, sir, with, with your that, knowledge. Um, that when um, when Hilt slides off his bike, it's a bit weird. I don't really understand why, but um, into the barbed wire. Now that's all kind of rubber barbed wire that they made. It's, it's I think if, again stuff I've read. It's barbless wire. Yeah. with rubber yeah. wrapped around. So it's apparently they spent it ages right. making it look like wire. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing when he's in the fence, that they might have put like. Hooked him up to some wheel because it, it does look oh like. Oh my god! It looks stuff. absolutely agony. Yeah, he's properly well, like throwing. He's fact, in there. Think, he's deep in there, isn't he? I think the the barbed wire. There's two barbed wire scenes. There's, there's that one, and then when oh, eyes. Oh, that is gruesome. Right. Yeah. I mean, eyes is dead. Like the it? way he's hanging off the barbed yeah. wire is nasty. Yeah. I don't like it. And there is going off on a tangent as well. There, there is a there was a Channel Four program with Guy Martin where he recreated that jump. Mm-hmm. Pretty much in the exact same spot. That's so cool. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it was on a few years ago, but it's worth watching. He trains to. He's obviously reasonably capable of riding a motorcycle. He's quite Martin. good. Yeah, he's quite good. Um, but yeah, he goes through a thing of actually recreating that jump at the same spot That's and so the cool. same height and stuff. So hmm. worth a watch. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the last thing that we have to talk about, Griff, uh, are the various members of the troop getting captured, and you had something there. Yeah, it was um, actually it was well. There's two things on on the captures. There's one, and um, we've spoken about the amount of people that went after Hiltz. 
Hiltz has had 17 escape attempts and it's probably more to do with the film. But why doesn't he get assassinated? Because mm. when you think of they've captured the, the 50 that they capture yeah, yeah, and they assassinate them. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on who captures you, right? Like Bartlett and some of the others were captured by the, by the whatever, the SS or the Gestapo or whatever. True. Um, it may, that's probably very true. Yeah. But you think of all the, you know, Hiltz has got all these people after him, all these multiple escape attempts, but... He's very they, he's very they, quick to show his insignia as well, isn't he? His officer's insignia on his shirt. Like, you've got to treat me yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, he is. No, so and I wouldn't that, say he's quick, but he he shows it. He makes a point to show. I'm it. not saying he he should have been shot, but it, it was it was one of those. But you're right. I think it probably more down to the fact that the Gestapo were transporting, yeah, the other ones. By the way, 17 escape attempts plus two, three more. So that was his 20th escape attempt. The, the tunnel, bravo. Yeah, Rachel. it was just it. It was just at the end, and it um when they they assassinate the 50. Yeah. It's just the um, one, it, it might be the film, one, I, I don't think that amount of shooting would have actually killed 50 no, it's people. not enough. But also it's just the haunting sound of the machine guns echoing in the mountains after it's yeah, yeah. after it's been done. It's just like, you know, you find it quite chilling that there's just this echo of machine gun fire going on. Yeah. Mac didn't know what's happening there either. That's the bit I'd not seen or don't remember seeing. I'm like... Well, they're just going to shoot you now, aren't they? Mac doesn't figure that out. No, no. Mac. So I could stretch my legs. Probably. <laughs> it's going to be a long ride, Lance. I'm... Yeah. Just, oh my god. Okay. Uh, on that note, uh, we will take a break. Let's move on to the categories, shall we? Uh, starting with the quick hits. Surprisingly, there were no uses of binoculars that I could see, so we couldn't see whether they were done correctly through POV. Um, there were no backhanded spit wipes. I thought there was going to be one. In the, the closest tunnel. we got was when Willie was trapped in the rubble and Danny yeah. rescues yeah, him yeah, and yeah. Bartlett starts giving him a drink and wiping his mouth. I just thought... Yeah, don't do it. Do just, it. Just do a backhanded spit wipe. Uh, no. Yeah, just, but so yeah. I'm, I'm. It's like a half. It's, it's a you know, a, 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 an assisted spit wipe is pretty close. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, Andy, have you got any nominees for Andy's hat? I put you on the spot a bit, but I would have thought. You'd... So there's, there's a really bad hat when they're trying to escape mm-hmm. by disguising themselves as Russians right at the start. Yes. I forget who it is, actually. Is it Danny? Sedg- I think it's Sedgwick. James Steals. Coburn. He takes... The, oh, that's right, it's Sedgwick. He takes, he takes a, a, one of the Russian peasants, or whoever they are, yeah. takes their hat. It's pretty bad. It is bad. Yeah. But also, I like it. I'm going to throw so out... that or, or one of the ones they wear on the... I think um, Bartlett's hat is pretty cool. Exactly. Roger's hat. Yeah. I mean, it is... So it might come up in the uh, Call Me Bronco Coolest Look Award, but Roger's whole escape suit is yeah. pretty good. But he's got a, like a black felt fedora. Yeah. I mean, it's class. He looks sharp. Yep. Um, how? <laughs> Where well, do you get a black felt fedora from? Actually, there's a lot of hats. Did, mm-hmm. did Griff also make those? Because... He might be a milliner. Uh, yes. 
Good use of the correct word. Because Mac has like a trilby or something on, doesn't he, as yeah. well? It's, uh, and um, Hendley. Yeah, Hendley's yeah, hat Hendley's is hat. sharp. I mean, it just, yeah. yeah Bartlett, Bartlett's um, was, was like proper. I think, I mean, that's, that's the one that stuck out for me. Yeah. Um, well, I had written down Roger's hat, so. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah, go okay, with Roger. Good. good. And um, Bad Ways to Die. I mean, obviously, there's a lot because there's 50 of them at the end. But I've got two. I think the way Ives dies is really bad. I mean, he's in he's utter in utter despair. Oh, I hate it. Yeah, I hate so it. that's really bad. They, and then they edit that scene out in some of the. Do they? Yeah, on some of the TV uh, showings of it, they don't show that. Mm. I think it loses a bit of impact then, because they, otherwise Hiltz's change of heart isn't quite the I same. I mean, they show obviously they show him imply him getting shot, okay. right? But the actual mm. bit of him hanging from the fence is okay. perhaps a step too far. The other bad way to die, which we don't actually see, but you can imagine it, is if, if you were stuck in a tunnel or launch. If, like, the tunnel collapsed and you were stuck in there, that would, I think, would be, for me, that's my pick for worst way to die. <clears throat> Any others? No, I, I'll go with Ives because it's so graphic, but you're right. The, the thought of being buried alive in the tunnel yeah. is terrifying to me. Griff, any, uh, any bad ways to die? It didn't die, but I always thought it'd be quite painful when, at the very start, when they're trying the blitz out and they get the pitchforks and they're putting them into the the, the pitchfork in the foliage, yeah, yeah. If you know what I mean, that would hurt. <laughs> yeah, they preempt that by just bailing, don't they? Yeah. Like, nope, I can see what's going to happen yeah. here. All right, uh, let's visit audio corner. So I'm going to start. I'm going to go through some nominations for my favorite audio moment. The music in general, it's classic. It's brilliant. It has been ruined by the England football team band. Uh, England matches, mm-hmm. uh, but we won't talk about that too much. Um, but there's a lovely moment when we first see them inside the tunnel. Right, right the, it's the first in a tunnel scene. The music is it's perfect for that that um, that particular moment. There's, <laughs> I love the way Griff says rather nice lo- rather nice lounge suits. <laughs> it's a very nice line reading. There's a number of great audio moments on the Fourth of July. And preceding the 4th of July. The second time Hiltz says wow. Wow. And drinking the the moonshine is just genius. I mentioned the cannon. The little bit of flute warm-up that Hiltz does, where the flute goes a bit sort of out of control for Mm -hmm. a brief moment is great but i think my favorite is during the fourth of july when everyone is merry and having a wonderful time and drinking the moonshine there is one guy that is laughing ridiculously loudly it's like throughout the whole scene this one guy going (laughs) ha 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 It's when I can't help it. Whenever I'm in a crowded place and like you're in a restaurant or you're in a bar or or wherever, and there's one person that whose laugh you can hear, it I can't help but think of the one guy on the Fourth of July that's um, having a brilliant time. So that's my winner. There's two for me. So uh, I love the main theme. We talked about it at the start, right? So it is. It's so evocative. I mean, there aren't that many. There are, but there aren't too many uh, themes that immediately indicate 
what you're about to watch both mm-hmm. in content and in tone i think it's it's really it's really cool and like you say it's kind of baked into british culture now but i'm going to go for the uh, <laughs> the annoying baseball noise Hilt. yes just bashing that ball uh, how many escapes have you tried well, four over seven under tell man huh sure i'm that how tall are you i my feet four. Why? Oh, just wondering. <laughs> and you see at the end, the German guy, when he when he helps us back in the in the cooler, he's like, oh, no, he's back, he's back. There's a interestingly, I did read that there was um, there's a production or a film company, a production company called Virgil Films, and, and you know you get a little little splash screen of their production yeah. stuff. But at the same time, they show that apparently I've not seen it. Does a gudunch. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Which is nice. Yeah, yeah. call back to that's great. Our friend Virgil. So, um, yeah, I'm going with that annoying we baseball. Haven't, we haven't really mentioned it, but one of my earliest kind of um, like recollections of this film is the fact that he's always got his baseball glove in the ball in the cooler. I mean, it's kind of an it's another iconic yeah, yeah. thing from this film, isn't it? Yep. Griff, anything for audio corner? Yes, I mean, apart from the obvious, the theme tune is is a classic. I think it's probably more noticeable during the escapees, but it's just the way kind of each set of escapees have their own little bit of music. So when Hilt is like being chased by the Germans, it's quite dramatic, you mm-hmm. know, um, music. And then when you've got Danny and Willie on their boat, it's all very peaceful, oh my gentle. God, it's so romantic with Romantic those two. music, yeah. you know, it's just, I just love the way that kind of different parts of the film, there's like a theme tune that mm. kind of follows. Um, follows whoever yeah um but i think overall and we've we've talked about it previously but the bit that just always makes me laugh is is group captain ramsey's his line how how, how are you boys yeah yeah good i just it's just it's just the way he says it it's just how how are you managing over there without us getting along all right are you we seem to be getting along all right sure sir it's like they're saying to him, right, pretend you're a little bit drunk on this moonshine, <laughs> you know, and think of something. It's just kind of completely, um, I wouldn't say not fitting in the film, but it just kind of comes from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Group capture, and I just, it just... I Gets just you every it. time, huh? Yeah. Every time. Uh, you mentioned the the themes, and I, I had something else I wrote down, but I missed when I was just going through my nominations, is the the music when Hiltz is riding the bike uh, <clears> is, is just brilliant. That That's close to, like, my pick, but no, I'm going to go with The Laughing Guy. We need to talk about Sedgwick's accent. We need to talk about James Coburn and his Australian accent. Mm -hmm. Why did they bother? Why couldn't he just be another American in the camp? His Australian accent is so unbelievably bad. And to the point where they knew it was bad because they had to keep reminding us that he was Australian. Got the worst line in the film is when Goff goes, was that Sedgwick with his steamer trunk 
I wish he was back home with his kangaroos. Just in case you didn't know he was Australian. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to reverse back to a little bit of what I read about the kind of makeup of the people. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of Commonwealth people in Star Trek uh, yeah, 3. As right? you would expect, right? And, and I think there is an over-representation in the movie of Americans. Mm. Um, that's fine. But I think that's the reality of it. And I think there was a perhaps a, a, a concern from the production crew that we couldn't have another record. Let's mm. make this guy Australian. Okay, Who's but, an Australian actor? Oh, that's right, no one. Let's, you, you're Australian now. James Coburn, can you just, do an Australian you, accent? Yeah, no, sure. Apparently you can't. Just say Bluey um, just a couple of times. Yeah, that's good. We'll mention kangaroos, you're in. But the guy who wrote the book was Australian as yeah. well. So it was probably maybe a nod to... Well, because him. I think it's either Nimmer or Haynes, but one of them, I think maybe Nimmer is... Or, I don't know, it's um, supposed to be Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. just don't bother. Be a, be a Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but he tried. <laughs> he tried for a bit as no, well. He did, you he? Oh, did he? I mean, let's not go back there, but for the love of okay. God. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Just say you're Australian and just speak whatever. Yeah. The, the accent, that's the worst. Be Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good, sorted. What uh, What is your best-looking scene, or what are your nominations for best-looking scene, Griff? So one nomination is, um, and I suppose I'm kind of drawn to it because I, I do have a picture of this in my house, is um, it's when Hiltz is being chased and he's off the bike, mm-hmm. and he's just stood there, and you see the mountains in the background, and he's by that hut, and he's just surveying. I just kind of just love the way that, that just all looks. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's again not being swayed by the fact I have a picture of this in my house as well. This when Hiltz is just all oh, Bud Edkins is over the um doing his jump like he's in midair basically when he's in midair yeah. that's just another an, another another classic. Those rolling hills are brilliant. So good for the yeah the bike jump yeah. Um, and I, th- I think they're my two probably nominations, but the one I know is just the one of Hiltz when he's off the bike. Just him looking cool. Next to the barn. Next to the barn, yeah. just... Yeah. yeah, so obviously, I think we've probably all got hilts with the mountains behind him. It's just iconic. And it's, this the scenery is incredible, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, but mine, I've got two. I'm not sure which one to pick. Both are Danny and Willie. <laughs> so initially, they, they, they get to the river and there's that boat and they look around and I'm thinking, wow, this place looks incredible. So just to briefly have a quick look left and right, and there's like a bridge and a lovely town behind it and the sun's setting. And I think, oh, lovely day for a boat ride. So, um, and then later on, when they're in the boat, they go into, they, they go um, toward, it just kind of pans out, and they're going toward another small village closer to the river this time with a lovely bridge. Mm-hmm. And they're just paddling underneath it. I'm thinking, that looks lovely. I love Germany. <laughs> Such a lovely place. Um, so I'm going to go with um, some of the, the river scenes with Danny and Willie. Nice. Yeah, it's, uh, they're really cool. Actually, I'm going to mention one more. When um, Colin and Henley are in the plane, they spy and obviously they're heading towards the border. And I think there's a, there's a brief shot of, um, I forget the castle name. Neuschwanstein? Yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty famous castle used yeah. in references for all sorts of things. Yeah. 
But yeah, but I'm going to go with the river because it's slightly more out there. Yeah. All of the scenes with Steve McQueen look great because mm. it's Steve McQueen and he's incredibly cool and looks awesome. Do you remember years ago, I think, I can't remember if it was Heineken or Carling, Black Label or some cheap lager in the UK did a sequence of commercials that were from classic films. And one of them yep. was from Some Like It Hot with um, Marilyn Monroe and one of them was the scene with Hiltz talking to Bartlett and Mac. I think it was Holston Pills. Holston, that's it. Yeah. When the sugar turns to alcohol. Yeah. So it was those those scenes where he's talking to Bartlett and Mac in that whatever it is, whatever hut that is they're in. They're so ingrained in my head that every time I see it, it's like, oh my God, that looks so cool. And he's holding the coffee pot. And anyway, so that that's a bit of a nomination for me. Um, I love Werner's face when um, Henley asks him for a camera. He's like all happy. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, okay. I've just figured out that I've been played here. So good. Uh, anything in the tunnel looks incredible with the lamps burning mm -hmm. and the 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 little carts on the wheels and it just and there's one shot where they look down the it's the Blackpool the yeah. lights at Blackpool mm -hmm. bit looking down the tunnel is just so good and they made that tunnel right it was all like a legit set and cameras along the side of it yeah. and stuff yeah it's so good uh, but I think I'm going to go for the scene that you mentioned the, the the shot on the plane with there's a lake and then there's the mountains and there's mm -hmm. the castle it's just it shows off Bavaria, I'm guessing. Bavaria Show, shows it off yeah, so well. Our German friends will correct us, yes. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm going to go for the the Alps and the, the lake and the castle. That's my pick. All right, Monsieur Mendel for our f award for the favorite incidental character. There are a lot, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. There's so can I rattle off a few yeah, nominees? Um, I like Nimmo and Haynes, the guys in charge mm -hmm. of diversions. I like Soren, the security guy with the pipe. He's awesome. I feel sorry for Smithy, the guy that misses out an entire eagle on whatever document he's mm -hmm. uh, trying to yep. forge. Uh, poor guy. Um, Werner gets a mention, obviously. He, but I don't know if he's incidental enough. But I'm going to go for the blonde guard, whose name is Frick, the one who gets soaking wet and says, turn the water off somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I like his character. I like he's really funny. I love to turn the water off. So I did a bit of research. So he's played by a guy called Till Kiva who in the Second World War was a paratrooper. He was captured. He was in a prison camp in Colorado and he escaped. He got as far as St. Louis before he was captured again. Wow. I mean, what? It's, I've got what? lots of questions about that, probably not for this podcast, but um, wow. What a legend, huh? I mean, Colorado to St. Louis, that's... Halfway through, well, it depends on where in Colorado he is, I guess, but that's through the entirety of Kansas and Missouri before you're caught again. That's a bloody long way. Um, so fair play to Till Kiva. So yeah, Frick's my favourite incidental character. Andy? Well, I feel bad now because I picked Werner and you told me he wasn't incidental enough. No, it's fine. It's, you know, it's your own interpretation. Good. It's all good. Werner. I love Werner. He might be, he might be my favourite character in the entire movie. Although he hasn't got many lines. He's a What's crazy mixed up, mixed up kid, that Werner, but I like him. Yeah. So then, I've talked enough about Werner. His teeth worry me. Like I'm... He's not a well man. No. <laughs> I'm not a well man. <laughs> Griff. Um, so there's a couple. There's um, 
he features in it more at the end. There's the guy that catches Bartlett and goes, your arms up. <laughs> <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, it, he, he, he just makes yeah. me... And also your French. <laughs> um, there's him, but he's also, there's that part, but there's also when they go back to the camp and he's sat in the back of the car and he's lounging there and he's sat there waiting for the door to be open. Oh, yes. Waiting for the door to be opened before he gets out. Yes. Like, so like he, open my door for me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, God, he's horrible. But I think my favourite interstellar character is the Gestapo officer that he's there at the start of the film that um, comes with Bart comes in with Bartlett, and he's my favourite character just because of the way he opens and closes his briefcase, the one that just, like flips it over. <laughs> just I haven't paid attention to this. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to have to watch it. So again. the guy that um, he wears glasses, I think he does. Some he, of the, he interviews Cavendish the at the end as well. Yeah, he interviews Cavendish, but when he he takes. Um, Roger, to the camp. He he has a briefcase and he hands over his file, and it's like a, it's it's not a handle briefcase. It's like a leatherette mm. or leather briefcase. Oh yeah, he flips. He, he flips. He flips the like the the flap yeah. right. But the flap of the briefcase. He it's flips almost it like, open, like, doesn't he? You're a bit of an incidental character. You've not got much. He's decided. My character will do this. <laughs> Can have a flourish on the briefcase <laughs> opening. Yeah. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Good job. Right. What's the best location? Uh, there's so many mm-hmm. I think in this film there are so many um, bearing in mind a location could be anything it could be one of the huts it can be like the cooler it can be you know whatever it can be Germany <laughs> I mean the camp itself the way they recreate it is cool that's, that's a great location the, the, there's the scene with Hilt obviously riding his bike the, the one we've talked about with um, Henley and Colin mm-hmm but one that I a location I really like it's 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 towards the end it's the it's the French guys when they assassinate yeah. because I kind of like that location because like it's a bit of reality it's a yes. bit of real life it's away from the camp it's away from you see people making their escape journeys but this is like this it's is normal real everyday life, life right and yeah. these are these are two other characters in like you know helping um, Cedric get away by really yeah. like their resistance it's mm. funny isn't it because you don't see and again obviously the the kind of british centric war films we see you don't often see normal normal what well, is portrayed as normal working day life in germany during the war in mm. in movies much do you mm. it's always like a, a, a concentration camp um, or prisoner war camp unless you're watching hello hello that's in france though isn't it yeah okay yeah no, good point. but yeah it's okay. a good point but yeah i guess <laughs> occupied france isn't Probably but the thing is, you said but... about German resistance. I've always assumed because they're French resistance that that scene where Cedric is, he's somewhere on the French. He's in France, it's German border. But no, I just like the fact you know there's chairs out. It's mm. everyday life. There's the bridge. Yeah, life goes on, right? There's a bar. You know, yeah. these Germans are sat down, and Cedric's like, oh, being scammed for their. So I just is a location. I think I just like that because it's just a bit, <laughs> it's slightly more different, a bit more real life. Mm. Your favorite location, Andy? Yeah, the mines, the tunnels. Um, you touched on it. I think it's so well done because it's. I mean, it's relatively straightforward as a as a location is concerned, um, and a, a scene is concerned. But it's it's brilliantly reconstructed, mm-hmm. and it's it's terrifying. It's so tight, and obviously, but it, and the lighting is great. And every time it's something is shot in there, it just looks fantastic. Yeah. Every bit of it looks brilliant. There's a couple of bits where I I, I don't quite buy the kind of the landslide. What do you call it? The collapse bits yeah. look a bit. But hey, um, yeah, I think they do a 
cracking job of, of portraying what that would have been like. And even just getting in there, I think. I think actually, was it Charles Bronson was actually claustrophobic. Um, I can't imagine going in there even even though one of the sides was open to the mm. cameras. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think it's brilliant. So yeah, Tunnels. Tunnel is my pick as well. Yeah, It's just such a great location. Quick, I mean, I'm going to mention the Alps again and the mm. lakes. Obviously, great location. And then I quite, I just like, I think it's hot, hot, hut 105, the the one where Tom likes the one underneath the stove. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that's quite a nice location as well. It's quite mm. an airy room. It's nice and light. It's got the stove in there. It's probably quite a cozy, warm place to hang out. So we didn't talk about it, but just making the stove. I love the genius of the way they would have thinking is that. They got like an empty tin can to keep the yeah. the smoke flume. Yeah. And yeah. also keep the fire burning the whole time, time so they don't want to move the thing. Yeah. What souvenir, what item, proper item would you like from the film? Or in real life, what proper item would you like? Uh, I'll have Hilt's mitt. Thank you very much. That was coat, but I'll go mitt because it's, it's more cool. souvenir. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I, mean, is it, I mean, you've had a yacht as a souvenir. I'd, I'll also take his bike, but I'm going to go mitt. Okay. Um Hilt's his bike. Okay, you want the bike. It's a okay. bike. Oh, it's fine. It's 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 a even it's split. A, yeah, no question. It's just cool. Yeah. Uh, so I'm also going for the glove and ball, baseball glove and ball. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I think in terms of like is in that two. If you pick two, because I'll take the ball as well. If you're going to have it. yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, I think it comes as a set. I'm pretty right. sure. Okay, good. but you know, we're talking about we've talked about this before. Like, if you've got a a room in your house where you've got your movie memorabilia collection you've got a little plinth because it would be on a plinth 100 mm-hmm. percent. the the mitt and ball from mm-hmm. great escape would be awesome I, I also want to say i might think about like the the, the pick that that cedric makes the, the first pick i mean that's good that's made from those two bits of the car yeah, that yeah. they yeah. they miraculously managed mm-hmm. to get off the one in the car i also had the bike as well as a as a, a backup the Call Me Bronco Coolest Look Award, uh, Griff. So there's, there's kind of loads of cool looks. We talked about Roger's dapper outfit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mac looks quite dapper as well. But my, I think my coolest look is, and it's before, before escaping, is Hendley. Hendley. I mean, everybody goes about Hilts, he's the king of cool. But Hendley, is sh- he's sharp. He's got a little it, cravat, I think, at one point, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, and you know, he 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 just looks cool. I think he's got the best look in the film. You know, he's he's got his nice suit on, his escape suit. But yeah. during the film, he's his uniform looks good. He's looking good. He's got he wears a, he at one point he wears a polar neck, I think. Yeah, and he's look he looks. So is that because <clears throat> he's U.S. Air Force? Oh no, he's from the RAF Beagle Squadron or something, isn't he? I think. But anyway. I think it's because it's James Garner. Okay, and he's just and he's incredibly just cool. Like so cool. Yeah. No fair. Because at the time, James Garner and Steve McQueen, they were, they were, they were the stars, and there was, I think, there was lots of arguments and toing and froing, like who is the big star of this well, film? Is it James Garner or is it Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen apparently was a bit of a nutcase when it came to that sort of thing. Um, so he, I think it was in the Towering Inferno. Where he was double oh, dual build with Paul, Paul Newman. Newman. Yeah. He counted the number of lines they each had. He insisted on them having the same number of lines in the film. Something like that, I remember reading. That's that's um, something. Your coolest look, Andy? No, oh, it's uh Hilt's just regular garb. Just Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so iconic. I don't quite... I'm not, I'm not a fan of the, the light trouser look, but um, as an ensemble, mm-hmm. that and the jacket, yeah, uh, with or without the uh, the glove and ball, I don't know. Just well, looks effortlessly cool. Hilter's outfits is... The washing facilities in style of glove free are pretty good because Hilt comes back covered in mud. Yeah, he's looking pretty sharp yeah. again in the same mm-hmm. outfit later on yeah. in the field. Yeah. What does he wear while they're getting washed? His red shirt that you wore in it. Just <laughs> well, <red shirt. laughs> so Hilt's red shirt is actually my pick. I like oh, that. Yeah. I like okay. that look. He just looks really cool, and it's Steve McQueen, so he looks cool in anything. But yeah, I just think he looks cool. Um, I will. I have a quick shout out to um, to Willie's outfit, which is like his battle dress. It's the RAF battle dress, but yes. he's got the mm-hmm. white kind of jumper on underneath. Anybody wears it properly, he looks quite cool. <clears throat> I like that look. Um, and Roger's escape suit. We've already talked about Roger's escape suit. I mean, he is looking absolutely sharp. Black, like whatever it is, like. Um, felt or something and like the great hat so uh yeah but i'm gonna go for the red hilts as red shirt uh right finish as we always do with closing credit so the credits on this are very very light there's almost no one in the film credit that that isn't uh, sorry there's no one that we haven't already talked about Mm -hmm. in in the uh, list of cast so (laughs) My old friend Werner, he gets the call here because I don't really understand his moniker. He's the ferret. I don't get it. Why is he the ferret? I've got, there's a bit more thing, more, more interesting stuff about Robert Graff who plays him. But first of all, I wanted to discuss his his name. I don't get it. The ferret. Well, so they refer, um, is it Mac at one point refers to, I saw the ferrets measuring the height under the huts or something, I think. So... It must be a name they give to a certain type of guard, perhaps, like Maybe. the lowest level guard, because they mentioned ferrets and goons. They do mention goons and ferrets. You're right. So, I can only assume it's yeah. He is the personification of, of the of ferret. The, the ferret. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, Robert Graff, as, as I said before, he died in um, 1966. Poor guy. Um, so he was not a well man. But the cool thing is, and the interesting thing about him, he was actually in the Second World War. Um, he was uh, on the Eastern Front, um, but was wounded in 1944. So, and then he was uh, came back to Munich and did some production stuff or something like that. But yeah, so he plays a guy, and I mentioned already that he seems like a person who didn't want to be in the war and mm-hmm. conscripted and stuff like that. And you mm-hmm. wonder how much. And I know there was a whole bunch of other German guys in there, but I guess none with with as many lines as Werner. You wonder how much of himself he pours into that little monologue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it. So, um, Robert Graff, I salute you, sir. Yeah, we all salute him. So just on your point on Robert Graff, like what he did, and some of these guys were German. I wonder how they felt being well, in. Yeah. You know, well, it, it was an American film, but just how they would have felt, you know, because some of them, you know, 20 years before. Would have, they, would have lo- they would have lost comrades and comrades, you know what I mean? Like friends, they would have lost family members in the war. Uh, yeah, and let's be clear, 20 years before, right? Yeah. Well, it was less than it. it was 18. It was yeah. 1963. Well, when, was yeah, when, I mean, when they filmed it, of course. So it be 62, probably, they filmed it or something. I mean, Graf was injured in 1944, so... 18 it years. Yeah. And you yeah. think, I don't know. Well, it goes potentially back to what you were saying about how they're conscripted. Yeah. In Werner, it seems to be. Um, and... You know, they 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 don't particularly want to be there. They they are doing 
their duty because they're afraid of being sent to the Russian front. Um, mm. They're there out of fear more than anything else because they have no choice. So um, maybe they would, I don't know, maybe I can't say that they were happy that the the Germans lost, lost the war, mm. but maybe they didn't have any emotional, strong emotional investment in doing what they were doing. They had to. Yeah. There we are. That's Robert, a Robert uh, graph. That's a somber note to, yeah. to end this one on. But, well, um, that's fine. You know, sometimes we've got to do it. I think yeah. that's going to do it for this episode. Thank can you. I for just, li- oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. I just you wanted c- to recommend that people should go read about this thing in real life. It's mad. Yeah, the, the stuff that these guys put themselves through to try and save themselves mm. better the war is insane. And it's not the only story like this, right? There's loads of them. But um, this one's really interesting. So go read about it. Well, I did wonder, and actually it was a topic of conversation I was going to bring up during the recording, and maybe I'll do it now. Um, this to- this story is being told because the Allies were victorious in the war, right? And I, the question I was going to ask was, how many similar stories do we have, or are there out there, of German prisoners of war, or Japanese, or anyone that were a part of the Axis powers, uh, that aren't being told, and my little bit of research about the guy that plays Frick is, is testament to that. I mean, he did escape. He did manage to travel, like, I don't know, 800 miles or something. So they are out there. Um, it's only yeah. because the Allies won the war that these stories get told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Paul, that will do it. Just on that Paul Brick No, it Hill. won't do it. <laughs> Paul Brickhill um, wrote the book yeah. that the film is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an Australian. He was in Stalagluf 3. So if you want to read about it, that literally is from the horse's mouth. Okay. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Andy. Thanks. And thank you, Griff. Thank you. We've actually got two recordings scheduled for the next week or so. So for next time, it will either be David Fincher's Gone Girl or Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. We're not quite sure which one's coming next, but uh, perhaps give either one of them a watch uh, and join along. But don't forget the small stuff. <laughs>